Welcome to Christian Life Academy on this fine Sunday in September and looking forward to looking at another portion of scripture again in the Psalms. We've been covering the Psalms here for the last couple of weeks. Uh, next week we'll get into something different, but this week please turn to Psalm 16. I've entitled the message, as you can see up there on the board, Present Comforts, Eternal Joy. Present Comforts, Eternal Joy. The uh, Holy Spirit has blessed us with many precious portions of scripture that remind us of the restored relationship we have with our creator because of our redemption via the finished work of Christ. And these are perhaps more clearly stated by the authors of the New Testament, of course, as they reflect upon Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, and what that means to us. But the Old Testament also has passages that remind us of how even the Old Testament saints, before Christ came, had a peculiar comfort and hope in the promises of God. David frequently speaks of these psalms, uh, in these psalms of his joy in knowing God, and this particular one is expressed uh, in Psalm 16. He expresses it quite clearly, uh, that he has a great comfort and hope in God. And I would really highly recommend to you all that you take the time to read, the, we're going to read this psalm this morning, but take the time to read this psalm, reread this psalm, meditate upon this psalm, because it is a precious psalm, a psalm that really speaks to our hearts, and it would be a great, I think, source of comfort and hope uh, when we're faced with discouragements or difficulties uh, in your Christian life. It's a psalm of trust. It's a psalm of confidence in the love, mercy, and promises of God. The title, A Mictum of David, is, and there's a derivation of a, of a Jewish term there, usually is understood by Spurgeon and many others to be called the golden psalm, the golden psalm, or some refer to it as David's jewel. Very precious, very important, very unique in that sense. It's definitely a messianic psalm, uh, and it was referred to by two of the apostles in their New Testament books, which we'll explain as we go along. It is a prayer. It's a prayer of dependence upon and trust in God, as I mentioned a moment ago. And it might be a great tool of comfort, of great comfort, in ministering to those uh, believers, for instance, that are facing the end of their life. This would be a great psalm to take them to, to find that peace and assurance that they're in Christ and that they will have the hope of eternal life. So I would definitely recommend it in that, from that point of view. More importantly, it points us ahead to Christ. And indeed... Uh, if you listen carefully with a spiritual ear, he can be found speaking to us in this psalm, especially in the latter three or four verses. So I hope, as we study it today, that it will cause you to set your mind on things above, on Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, and that it will secure your hope as a believer in the eternal life that is yours, guaranteed yours, in him. So let's dive into it here and set our hearts upon the Lord. I'm going to be asking a series of questions. The idea of the questions is to provoke you to think about where you stand with God and, and what his promises mean to you. So as we go through, you'll hear those questions, and I ask you to kind of take them to heart, and if you have notes, jot them down and use them to kind of, I guess, fact-check yourself as it comes to your faith and where you stand. Let's begin uh, by reading the whole psalm, and then we'll go through section by section. Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. 
As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied, who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's a beautiful psalm. Like I said, I recommend you use it as a psalm of meditation and encouragement uh, throughout your day. First of all, let's look at those four key words, very profound words, very important words. In the first couple verses, let me read those first two verses again. Preserve me, O God, for on you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Note those four words. You are my Lord. David begins this psalm with a prayer, a prayer for God for protection there in verse 1. And he declares his trust in him. You know, in this world of betrayed trust and uncertain times, our confidence and our hope must be anchored in someone we can always depend upon. Matthew Henry made this comment on verse 1. He said, Thus those that by faith commit themselves to the divine care and submit themselves to the divine guidance have reason to hope in the benefit of both. This is applicable to Christ who prayed, Father, save me from this hour and trusted in God that he would Deliver him, unquote. So, first question. Where or upon whom have you placed your trust? Where or upon whom have you placed your trust? That familiar passage, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, exhorts us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not upon our own understandings. In all our ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. That particular verse, verses, Psalm, I mean, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, was the life verse of my mother-in-law, who spent 40 years on the edge of the Sahara Desert, ministering with her husband to the people there with the gospel. And she lived that life. She lived those verses. She believed in those verses as her life verses because she saw in the reality of life the sovereignty of God, and she could trust in him through trials, through tribulations, through blessings, to take care of her and her husband, to provide for them, to direct them, to minister through them to the people there. So ask yourself that question as we go on through here and, and really throughout your days, upon whom have you placed your trust? Can we say that it's true in our lives? We do trust in him or do we hedge our bets? Do we trust in our portfolios, our insurance plans, our jobs, our friends, our family? Or do we trust exclusively ultimately, in him. In whom do you trust? Don't put God on the back burner of your life. Keep him right up front as the ultimate one in whom you trust. Spurgeon put it this way, According to thy faith, be it done unto thee, is a great rule of heaven in dispensing favor. And when we can sincerely declare that we exercise faith 
in the great rule of heaven, I'm sorry, in the, in the mighty God, with regard to the mercy which we seek, we may be assured that our plea will prevail. As believers, it is our duty to declare that the God of heaven and earth is our Lord, our Lord, as David does here. And when faced with the temptation to follow our own will, to do our own thing, we need to stop and acknowledge his sovereign reign over us and all that we have to do. We need to stop. When we're faced with that temptation to go our own way and to do our own thing, we need to back up, stop, and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? I trust in you. I depend upon you. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 declares, Therefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, do you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? That's a question, really, I think all of us who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb should ask ourselves every day, maybe getting up in the morning and saying, Lord, is Jesus, or saying, Lord, are you the Lord of my life today, or am I? And at the end of the day, when you come to the end of the day, look back over the day and say, has the Lord been the Lord of my life today, or have I? Who's in control? Who do you submit to? Who do you look to for guidance, for direction, for hope, for trust, for strength? That's the challenge. That's the questions we need to ask ourselves. The latter half of verse 2 here, as you look at your text, should remind us of a very important biblical principle regarding the state of man before God. Note, it says, uh, the King James Version says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. That's the New King James. In the King James, it reads, my goodness extendeth not to thee. The word extendeth, by the way, is not in the Hebrew. And really a literal reading of that text would be this. My goodness or happiness is not beside you. Let me read that again. My goodness or happiness is not, in other words, it doesn't exist, beside you. In other words, his happiness here, the psalmist, is in none other than God. And he has no good apart from the Lord. Does that ring any bells theologically? It should. Look back at your Bibles, just a couple psalms to Psalm 14. Verse 1 and verse 3. Verse 1 of Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Look down to verse 3 of that text. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. The theological principle is there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who does good. In fact, if you were to flip forward in your Bibles, you don't have to do this by, right now, but I'll let you know. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 17, you'll find the words of the Lord Jesus. There is none good. There's only, I'm sorry, there is there, one, no one is good but one, that is God. There is none who is good except God. And Paul extends that even further, as you well know, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, when he says there is none righteous, no, not one. We have no natural goodness. We have no natural a righteousness, we have only our sin before God. There's no one righteous, not one. If God looks upon any of us and sees any righteousness, it had better be the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith, or we will spend an eternity in hell for our righteousness because God looks upon that as filthy rags. So if God sees you and sees righteousness, 
it better be the righteousness of Christ because nothing else would appeal to him. Nothing else would make him make you acceptable in his sight. Paul makes this uh, statement regarding the Jews. Now, again, you may have a, a great zeal for God. You may have a desire to do things. You may attend church every Sunday, every Wednesday night. You may um, give alms to the poor. You may have verses plastered all over the walls of your house. However, Paul makes this statement regarding the Jews in Romans chapter 10 when he says, For they, referring to the Jews who have a zeal for God, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's from chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. In this psalm, David is expressing the reality that he has nothing to commend himself to God and is totally dependent upon God for any goodness, let alone any happiness. And yes, we can find happiness in this life as, as human beings. We certainly can with relationships, family, things that we, God gives us. God blesses us with many things to keep us in happiness. Yet real, true happiness, lasting happiness, eternal happiness, beloved, can be found only in a right relationship with your God. And that, as we shall see, is going to last forever when we get to verse 11, if your righteousness is truly found in God. So that's an important principle we start out with. First of all, is he your God? And secondly, recognize that your only righteousness, your only acceptance before God is found in Christ. Let's move on now to the next couple of verses, which is saints versus sinners. And no, that's not a football game. Okay, saints versus sinners. Let's read verses 3 and 4. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Verse 4, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names upon my lips. So after establishing the importance of his relationship with God, David now turns to his fellow human beings and the relationships that he has with them. First, we know that he finds delight in his fellow believers, literally in those who are set apart. That's what we're talking about here in, in the text the elect of God, those who are set apart. Question, another question. Is this true of you and I, beloved? Now, certainly, none of us are perfect here. There's no saint on earth who is perfect, who is completely sanctified. Branch is getting close, but Lauren would tell you, not close enough, right? <laughs> but, so there's no one who is perfect. However, we need to ask ourselves the question. Think about it. God has has loved us with an everlasting love. He has given us this opportunity to be gathered together as his people, and we should delight in and love one another as God's people. None of us are perfect, but we are God's elect. God found delight in each of us. Think about that. In spite of who we are, in spite of our imperfection, in spite of our sin, God in eternity past found delight in each of us. So much delight that he determined to save us and, and give his son to die for us. He found delight in us. And as imperfect as we are, he loved us as we are with an everlasting love, not based upon our merits, but upon his mercy and grace, his pure sovereign grace, as we're told in the scriptures. Therefore, shouldn't we be loving and caring for each other? In fact, a couple of scriptures just to give you a sense of how great his love is and what it should mean to us. Uh, Jeremiah 31.3, familiar passage. Yes, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with him, with Christ. I'm sorry, by grace you have been saved. Again, this is picturing the love of God that he had towards us as we were sinners. Okay? Therefore, we should be looking at each other as redeemed sinners whom we can love. Lastly, Titus 3, 4, and 7. But when... 3, 4 through 7, I'm sorry. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We should become heirs together according to the hope of eternal life. We together. Therefore, we should look upon each other as joint heirs. We should look, should look upon each other as I'm more of an heir than you are, or I'm more sanctified, or, or a better heir than you are. No, we are all are heirs of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should look upon each other with that same value, not categorize each other or put each other in different levels as though one is more significant than another. David just just call them here. Notice he doesn't just call them, well, they're... They're decent folks, or they're okay, you know, I can stand them. No, he doesn't do that. He calls them the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. That's a pretty profound statement. That's pretty strong. He calls them the excellent ones, not the okay ones or the not bad ones, but the excellent ones in whom is all of his delight. He delights to be with God's people. He delights to fellowship with them. He delights to be called a part of the body of Christ. So, question, is that how we view one another here at ARBC? Is that how we view one another? As imperfect as we are, as different as we are, is that how we view one another? If not, should we pray for the grace of God to help us to make it true in our hearts? Psalm 119, verse 63 says, I am a companion of all who fear you and of those that keep your precepts. We need to look upon ourselves, each other, as companions in the walk of life. Look upon the ones whom we delight in as those who keep the precepts of God with us and who serve God with us. The question we need to ask, here's another question, who do you enjoy being with the most? Now, we all have loved ones, I'm sure, dear friends who aren't believers. And certainly we care for them, we desire to see them come to know Christ. But ultimately, who do you delight to be with on a regular basis? Whom do you delight to interact with? Who do you delight to worship God with? Probably more importantly, who do you delight to be with? We're to seek the loss, definitely. We're to seek to bring loved ones, friends, neighbors, co-workers to Christ, and that they might become the excellent ones in whom we delight. But ultimately, now, our fellowship should be with those who are in Christ and who can encourage us to walk in the way worthy of the gospel of Christ. That should be our desire. So we need to ask ourselves that question. Who would we delight to be with? Who would we rather be with in a, in a pinch, you know, in a tough situation? Obviously, we would desire to be with God's people. Now, David turns in verse 4 to show to those who are not the fellow saints, but they're idol worshipers. Matthew Henry says this, Those that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds, not enough. And if you know some of the history of the world and the uh, ultimate 
uh, idol worshipers you have, Kathy and I have been praying uh, every night for different uh, countries, different people groups within the country. You go to India, and there's so many gods you can hardly keep track of them. But that's what these people are caught up in, worshiping multitudes of gods. Some have their favorite god. Some have, you know, uh, community gods. But they have multitudes of gods. Yet those gods will not satisfy them. It will only lead them to destruction if they don't turn away from them and turn to the one true God. And we must be on guard. We must be careful. Sadly, society around us has as many gods as as you can think of, and people hasten after them, be it wealth, be it power, be it sex, whatever it might be. We must be on guard, lest we are tempted to drift away and to look what they're chasing and turn away from the exclusive worship of the one true God. The first commandment has not been abrogated. There's only one God, and he alone is to be worshipped. So we need to ask ourselves that question. Again, as we go through life, it's easy to be caught up in life and forget about who we are and what we should be doing. Is God your Lord, as we saw in verse 2, or are you chasing after someone or something, something else that is the source of your delight? What is your delight in? Your delight should be in number one, in the Lord, but also your delight should be in the people of God who help you to continue to keep your delight in the Lord. As the last half of verse 4 suggests, we should not even give attention to or speak favorably of those whose God is wealth or power, self, etc. We shouldn't be, you know, exalting or encouraging or applauding those who, no matter how popular they may be in the world, whose God is not the God of the Bible. May the word of God given to Jeremiah... In chapter 2 and verse 13, not be found true in us. Or God says to Jeremiah, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot, that can hold no water. It would be a blessing to the body of Christ in whom we delight. If we would be that blessing, then we must separate ourselves from the idols and the ideals of this world. Therefore, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. As Brass has been teaching on Wednesday nights, we are living in the kingdoms of this world, but we are members of God's eternal kingdom, and therefore should live accordingly. Calvin said this regarding this particular portion of the psalm, we cannot be united into one, the one body of the church under God if we do not break off all the bonds of impiety, separate ourselves from idolaters, and keep ourselves pure and at a distance from all the pollutants which corrupt and vitiate the holy service of God. We need to, obviously, we're living in the world, we're among the world, but we need to be separate from the world when it comes to our life, our actions, our thoughts, our desires, and particularly when it comes to worshiping our one true God be different from the world. Let's go on now to the next couple verses. We'll call it a good inheritance. We have a good inheritance in verses 5 and verse 6. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. These two verses, verse 5 and 6, both humbled me and amazed me as I was studying them in preparation for this message. This takes us back a little to verse 2, 
For if he is our Lord, then we also consider God the focus and joy of our eternal life. In fact, this thought, this thought here in these verses reminds me of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3. Listen very carefully to how this is worded. And this, this is Jesus speaking, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let that verse kind of sink in a little bit. What is our eternal life? Should we not think of our eternal life, if of course we are truly in Christ, as what God would want us to be? Should we not focus our attention upon him? Should we not focus upon what he means to us? In other words, our eternal life should not be thought of as party time. No pain, no sorrow, seeing all the great people up there in heaven, hanging out on streets of gold, interviewing Paul and Moses and Adam about what was life like for them. That's not what eternal life is. Oh, yes, oh, we should be praising the Lord Jesus. Of course, we do that. But what is eternal life? David expresses it here. And as Jesus did in John chapter 17, God himself is the portion or goal of our internal inheritance. He is the focus of our eternal life. The focus of our attention in eternity should be on God himself. And, of course, that includes our Savior. That includes the Trinity. If there were no streets of gold, if there were no mansions, and by the way, that is a misnomer anyway. John 14, 2, it says mansions. is actually, in the Greek, it's dwellings. It doesn't mean mansions. That was just a word that they used in writing the 1611 that was translated into a mansion, which wasn't what the word means. If there was no river of life, if there was no gates of pearl, it would still be beyond description a beautiful and satisfying place because God is there. Our focus is not on all those things that we might receive in heaven. Our focus should be on God. He is the focus or should be the focus of our eternal life. Revelation 22. I'm sorry, verse 20, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Heaven is really being in the presence of Almighty God and enjoying the wondrous reality that you and I are his adopted sons, that he loves us so much he gave his son for us, and we will dwell before him for endless years basking in that love and acceptance, amazed by his grace because of what Christ has done for us. God has withheld nothing from us once he has adopted us as his beloved children. And indeed, as Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That should be the focus, not of the things, but of God and of Christ himself. That is our eternal life, is a renewed fellowship with God that Adam lost in the sin. Adam used to walk with God in the garden, enjoyed fellowship with God in the garden. He, face to face, interacted with God. We will have that return to us once we are in glory. That should be our joy. Not all the extra things that the Bible talks about, be it streets of gold or anything else. He is the focus of our eternal life. That is what our inheritance is all about. 
David expresses here, and Jesus did in John 17, that God himself is the portion or goal of our internal inheritance. And the focus of our attention in eternity should be not only on our Savior, who is there, obviously, in bodily form, but on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. On a side note, by the way, before I go on, David does not only speak, is not only speaking of himself here, and by default, all believers, but he speaks for Christ. The words found in verses 5 through 11, those verses found, verses 5 through 11, could easily be the words of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. In fact, they really are, if you look at them. Notice that, though in verse 5, that not only has the Lord given us an inheritance in himself, but he maintains or upholds it. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. Nothing or no one can pluck us out of his hands, as we're told in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Once you have been redeemed, you are secure in Christ for all of eternity. So, as we step back and look at it, as David is doing here in verse 6, we can honestly and contentedly say, my future is both blessed and secure. Yea, I indeed have a good inheritance, for it is with my God in heaven. You know, if you had a rich uncle or rich relative of any kind, and he left you a million, multi-million dollar inheritance, that should be, be wonderful, but it would be nothing. It would be a drop in the bucket compared to the eternal riches that are ours in Christ, and not material riches, but valuable riches in the sense of our relationship with God. You can't take material riches with you when you leave this life. You and I, if we are in Christ, not only have a good inheritance, but a great inheritance, an everlasting inheritance in heaven itself. That's what we should be focusing on. Our inheritance is being in heaven with God. That should be the joy of our hearts. Beyond anything we could possibly accomplish or achieve in this world, our joy, our greatest joy as believers should be in that we have an inheritance, a guaranteed inheritance, an everlasting inheritance with God in heaven when we leave this earth. Matthew Henry summed it up this way. I like the way he put this. God himself is the inheritance of the saints there in heaven whose everlasting bliss is to enjoy him. We must take that for our inheritance, our home, our rest, our lasting, everlasting good, and look upon this world to be no more ours than the country through which our road lies when we are on a journey. In other words, as you're traveling through uh, states or properties or even foreign countries, you don't look around you and say, well, this is mine. Of course it's not yours. You're just traveling through it. So we should look upon our life here on earth as something we're traveling through. It's not ours. That's not our inheritance. Our inheritance is in heaven with God. And that inheritance is focused upon him, not the things that he might give us up in heaven. So that's what we want to focus our attention on, what we have in him, not what we have here on earth. Let's move on now to the next couple of verses, verses 7 and 8. We'll look at what we'll call a blessed confidence, a blessed confidence. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Spurgeon points out in his treasury of David that if it was our Redeemer's want, I'm sorry, it was our Redeemer's want to repair to his father for direction and having received it, he blessed him for giving him counsel. An example of this can be found in John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. 
Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, which I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Also, if we were to look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 27, we'll see very specifically there, you can just write that down, Matthew 11, 25 and 27, where Jesus very specifically thanks the Father for the direction he has given him. We need to be the students of God's word. And when he instructs us in that word, how to live for his glory, we ought to bless or thank him for giving us the wisdom to do what is pleasing in sight. Just think of where we'd be today if we didn't have the scriptures that have been recorded and saved for us for all these centuries. Where would we be? We wouldn't know what to do. We'd have to rely upon instructions from God verbally. But God has given us these truths that we might know what it is for us to live, how it is for us to live, and how we can please him, how we can do things that are honoring to him. Psalm 25 and verses 4 and 5 says this, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. If we immerse ourselves in God's word, our hearts and our minds will indeed be instructing in the night seasons, as, Paul, as David refers to it here. Memorizing the word of God will no doubt lead us to have wiser thoughts, and perhaps even profitable dreams or at least contemplations during our night season. If you're faced with a dilemma, especially a spiritual one, who do, here's another question. Who do you go to for counsel? Now, certainly there's nothing wrong with seeking the advice of wizened old saints, your elders, godly Christian friends, you know, to ask their opinion on something, if they value their opinion. However, ultimately, if you want to get the best answer to your dilemma, you need to go to the word of God and to the God of that word, right? That's who we should be focusing on when it comes to our confidence. Our confidence is based not in our wisdom, it's our confidence is based in the God who is the very essence of wisdom. This leads to David's confident statement here in verse 8. I have set the Lord, notice here, he doesn't say, I have set the Lord occasionally upon my mind. No, he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. His confidence was not in himself, not in his ability to make quick decisions or do things. His confidence was in setting the Lord before him, meaning trusting the Lord with all his heart, And because God was near him, he was at his right hand, that picture of of security, of being at the right hand, of being next to someone, I shall not be moved. Calvin said, to set God before us is nothing less than to keep all our senses bound and captive, that they may not run out and go astray after any other object. So, a good advice. If you keep your mind set upon the Lord, upon his advice, his counsel, as found in his word, and even through the Holy Spirit's leading, It will keep you from going astray and chasing after some other object of trust. In other words, we need to keep our hearts and minds fixed upon the sovereign God of all providence and trust that no matter what the circumstances are that we face, he's in control and he will be with us to guide us and direct us. Brian has been leading us in this very truth as he covered the last few points there, chapter 3 of God's decree in the 1689. Line Confession of Faith. Peter quotes these last four verses, by the way, of Psalm 16 in his powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost. We find it in Acts chapter 2, verse 25 through 28. 
we won't go there right now, but you can write that down, Acts 2, 25 and 28. Peter's actually quoting the last four verses here of Psalm 16. They certainly point us to Christ who, while enduring the cross, kept the Father before him and could not be moved. He could not be moved from his redeeming task. Nothing could stop him from fulfilling his, the plan of redemption. Matthew Henry made this comment on verse 8. He said, he, Jesus, aimed at his Father's honor and the restoring of the interest of his kingdom among men. And this kept him from being moved by the difficulties he met with, for he always did those things that pleased his Father. This, beloved, is our task. If we would admire and seek to imitate our Savior, in other words, by God's grace, seek to always do those things that are pleasing to our Heavenly Father, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, as we're told in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, with confidence in the God of all grace, who has loved us with everlasting love, and who promises to be with us. He is our confidence. He is the one we're resting in, not in ourselves, not in our own wisdom, not even in the confidence, uh, the, the counsel of other friends, but our confidence is in his sure word, his sure promises, which he will not uh, take, walk away from or abrogate. So that's an important question to ask yourself. Where is your confidence? Where is your confidence? Is it in the Lord or is it in yourself? Is it in some, someone or something else? Our confidence should be in him and what he has promised to us in Christ. Let's move on now to the last few verses, and we'll, we'll kind of title this little section called Our Blessed Hope, Our Blessed Hope. Let's read the last three verses, verses 9 through 11. And I love these verses. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> As we said a minute ago, these few verses are particularly, obviously, very messianic. Peter quotes them and applies them to Christ in Acts chapter 2. Paul indirectly refers to them in Romans chapter 4 and verse 24 when referring to the Father as him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And the very, and very similar words are used and found in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. David's hope was in a resurrected Messiah or Holy One as he refers to Christ. Our hope is in the same, anchored in the completive redemptive work of Christ, which includes his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he forever intercedes for us his people. So another question, beloved, are you resting in this hope? Are you resting in the hope that Christ has indeed been seated at the right hand of the Father and is there interceding for you? Are you assured of your salvation and that God will not leave your soul in Sheol or hell? Now, all of our bodies, as we know from Scripture, will undergo decay or corruption at our deaths. But our souls, if we are believers in Christ, will be immediately in the presence of our Lord. Paul expands on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 1 through 8. Let's, let's turn there. I was going to just make a reference, but let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and read as Paul encourages us through that hope that we have in Christ that is an assurance of our resurrection as Christ was resurrected. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Note that word. It's not potentially in the heavens or maybe in the heavens. It is eternally in the heavens. For in this we groan, in this life we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who, he has, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, there's that confident word, Yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. As for those who are not Christ's sheep, they will find their souls under the eternal wrath of God in hell. But we who are in Christ, as David expresses here in verse 9, we have such a blessed hope that should cause us to not only be glad, but to rejoice in what God has prepared for us to fill our mouth with his praise. He has not only promised us eternal life in Christ, but by his grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, he has what? Shown us the path of life in his word. He's not just given us a nebulous promise that we have to kind of figure out when is that going to happen or how is it going to happen or who's included. No, he's given us in his word that very passage of life. He's shown us the path of life. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can be used of God to show others the path of life, eternal life, the repentance of their sin and faith in Christ. The path of life as found in Christ. Now, if anyone knew what heaven was like and what the fullness of joy was in the presence of God, it was the Son of God. He knew what it was like. Yet he gave it all up. That's, that's what such an amazing thing, should be an amazing thing. Christ knew the glories of heaven. He knew the pleasures of being in the Father's presence for all of eternity, and yet he gave it up to come here, to become a man to live a perfect life for us, to die a perfect death, facing the wrath of God, enduring the wrath of God for us. He knew all about what that life was. He lived a perfect life, and he died a substitutionary death that one day we might taste and see that the Lord is truly good, that we might partake of that fullness of joy. And in Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, enjoy heavenly pleasures forevermore, forevermore. No matter how difficult your life may or may not be on earth, that blessed hope that David describes here in these last two or three verses is worth waiting for and worth living for. Spurgeon, quoting from the Puritan John Trapp, closed his comments on this passage with this. Here is as much said as can be, but words are too weak to utter it. In other words, it doesn't really grasp the total of it. But then he says this. For quality, there is in heaven joy and pleasures. For quantity, a fullness, a torrent, whereas they drink with let or no loathing. For constancy, it is at God's right hand, who is stronger than all, neither can take us out of his hand. It is a constant happiness without intermission, and for perpetuity, it is forevermore. Heaven's joys are without measure, mixture, or end, unquote. Now, We certainly, without question, have a rich inheritance that we neither deserve nor can earn. That's the truth of Scripture. 
Our joys here on earth are temporary. While they're in heaven, they are everlasting. That's hard for us to grasp because obviously we have our ups and downs here on earth. We have times of great joy and happiness and blessings. And we have times of great sorrow, trials, difficulties, frustrations, discouragements. But the wonderful thing is that when we leave this life, we leave all those things behind and we enjoy perfect, perfect fellowship with God, perfect happiness, perfect joy, perfect in all things. Matthew Henry makes this point much more eloquently than I I can. So let me read this in closing. Our pleasures here are transient and momentary. And that's the truth. And such is the nature of them that it is not fit that they should last long. But those at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. They are the pleasures of immortal souls in the immediate vision and fruition of an eternal God. That's where our treasure is, in the fellowship, in the presence of our eternal God forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.